I have the pleasure today of being joined by Peter Haas. He is an ordained minister and a scholar based in Austin, Texas, uh, went to Princeton Seminary. And today we're going to be discussing the topic of spirituality in nature. And Peter is absolutely a lover of nature. I think I have that right. So welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lee. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, uh, just getting started here, can you tell us a little bit about your background and life story, if you will, where you grew up, your connection to nature, you know, starting from when you were a kid, your parents, and, and just how life unfolded, and, you know, how you got to where you are today and your relationship now with nature? Sure. Uh, my mom gave me so much of a love for nature. I, the more I uh, as I get older, I see how she imprint, imprinted me. She told me the story once that when she was a teenager, like 18 or 19, uh, she would go out to a nearby forest. It's called the Kettle Moraine State Forest in Wisconsin, where I grew up, southeastern Wisconsin. Um, about an hour and a half from Aldo Leopold's little shack or, mm. or cabin. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just beautiful forest. And they have done a lot of planting of evergreen trees or pine trees. And the interesting thing is that she would she would walk in the forest and pray and just disappear. She'd love to be alone in, in, in the forest. And I, I, I'm the same way. And uh, in fact, there's, there's a forest there that they planted uh, the year of my birth in uh, the Kettle Moraine State Park. And uh, it's kind of sandy soil there. And so my whole life, we've been walking in that woods and in, in the forest. It's man-made planted forest, but nevertheless, it's stunningly beautiful. And over the years, they've, they've um, you know, harvested trees. So it's just been this neat connection, like a mirror of my life. As I've grown older, the trees have grown older. And uh, it's been very poignant to walk, walk there. So... I don't know. I feel like my mom gave me the love of nature and I had it in my, my bones, my DNA. And I felt so blessed to have grown up in a place like Wisconsin. At the time, I didn't realize how astounding Wisconsin was, you know, but over the years, I've just fallen in love with it all the more. So, and were both of your parents uh, close to nature and had you and your siblings spend a lot of time in it? Uh, well, you I know, know you moved not, around some. Yeah, my dad was was uh, not so much a nature guy at all. He loved to take walks, but in, he, he grew up more in the city. Uh, so I got my love for nature from from my mom, I think. And uh, we we ended up moving to this commune in Oregon in the uh, early 80s, 1980, 81. And uh, it was it was an, I call it the best of times, the worst of times, because we had like an 80 acre farm. And uh, I had the Applegate River behind our little A-frame. Uh, no electricity, no running water, uh, no heat. We just had a wood-burning stove and, a, and an outhouse. And then we'd have to go up to the main house, the commune house, for, for food and, and uh, hot water, baths, and whatnot. But as a little boy, you know, 9, 10 years old, it was magical to just have the free reign of the, that nearly 100 acres, five-acre garden. We grew a lot of food there. And of course, I I had the chores of taking care of the, um, let's see, there were goats, there was a pig, two or three pigs, that was awesome, and then the uh, the hor the, um, the uh, pasture was full of a couple cows, one in particular named Clara, 
who did did not like to be milked, but after she was milked, she'd chase me with the pails. I think I lost half the milk <laughs> running away from her. Anyway, so you yes. you had a real hands-on connection then, uh, which is great. That's such a good foundation. And then how did that manifest as you became older? I know you had some career choices. And can you talk about that a little bit? I think emotionally, I didn't know it at the time, but emotionally, as a kid, I resonated with nature and, and the weather and, and the mountains and the trees. But at some level, it was like the environment of my inner world was was deeply formed by my relationship to and, and seeing of, of beautiful things, the beauty of nature, the beauty of mountains, the beauty of the ocean. And it really comforted me and spoke to me. And uh, I took a lot of, uh, I, I took refuge in, in, in it, uh, especially, you know, the, the worst of times in the commune was a very difficult place to live um, for, for various reasons. There were some really weird things that were happening um, and I was uh, very scared and stressed, and so I would look out at the mountains in the distance and feel great comfort just looking at them. They were friends to me. And also, I would also feel trapped by them, and I'd also feel trapped by the low-hanging, gray, rainy clouds throughout the winter. I just wanted, I remember as a kid wanting to take a rake and just rake the clouds away. It was so depressing month after month in the winter in Oregon. I wanted to escape the commune and go back to Wisconsin. So I don't know. It was it was it was a mixed experience. We moved back to Wisconsin and we lived in a little um, suburb, basically of Milwaukee. And so I went back to normal suburban life, and uh, it was quite a quite a shift. Um, but uh, that's that's when we would go and take walks in the in the nearby state parks and state forests. You know. I did, when I hit high school, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. In fact, I knew I just loved being in nature and loved rock climbing and loved going and spending time at Devil's Lake State Park. I even quit my, my junior JV uh, football team so I could spend the fall uh, going up to Devil's Lake State Park because I preferred to be there than playing football. And um, I think it was my junior year, I went into the uh, guidance counselor's office and I was leafing through little pamphlets of different schools and I saw this pamphlet that had pine trees on the cover and I love pine trees, they're my favorite tree. And I opened it up and it was a brochure for Northland College, which at the time in the, in the late 80s um, was the nation's only environmental education outdoor, outdoor ed school mm -hmm. plus forestry. Uh, minor degree. And I just fell in love with it and uh, ended up going there for a little bit um, and, and realized I wanted to be a forest ranger. You know, that I thought this is awesome. I could take people hiking and climbing and, you know, spend my life in, in, in the place I love and make a living doing that. And so what happened in terms of, uh, I don't want to say detour, but you ended up going a different direction and um, you just tell a little bit about your religious formation and, you know, even as a kid or, but, you know, how you ended up going to seminary and, and that whole path. Yeah. I mean, Martin Luther, the famous reformed theologian, you know, somewhere along the line, he said something like, you know, just look, look to the scriptures for, for they will reveal to you the only God we've got. Um, and 
it's as good as it's going to get, basically. Hold on to the scriptures, hold on to what the scriptures teach, because it's as good as it's going to get, you know. And I like to say, well, that's true, you know, that's that's been true for me, but also, I hold on and let nature hold on to me, particularly beautiful places of solitude. So, for me, it's as if God is as close to me uh, as anything through nature. It, it might as well be, I might as well say God is nature. I know that's not theologically accurate to say, but it's as if it's that close to me, that the, the, the veil of whatever divine energy of love is, is, is coming through the beauty, the symmetry, the harmony of nature, the chaos of nature, uh, all of it, the power of nature. It's as if, you know, nature is God. And so it's kind of, it doesn't surprise me that I, I love nature and I love spirituality. And I was kind of attracted to both. And I couldn't figure it out as a young man. I couldn't separate one from the other. But that started to happen, unfortunately. And I started to uh, feel this attraction to being a pastor, which, um, um, you know, as I look at my journals and, and I think about those decisions I made, I was at Northland College that fall, first fall semester. And I remember thinking, well, number one, I had a hard time passing the the algebra and advanced algebra classes and chemistry that I knew I would need to have for, for the degree, you know, to get be a force ranger. And I was much more competent in the language skills and arts and whatnot, more liberal arts stuff. And I remember thinking, you know, maybe I don't need to make a living doing the very thing I love to do the most, being in nature. And maybe I don't need to make a living doing that. Maybe I keep that just for myself. Maybe. Maybe nature is just for my soul and, and being being with God. And, and maybe I make a living doing something else like being a pastor or a teacher or writer. And so that was a big part of my decision process to, to leave Northland College and go to a college in, in, in downtown Chicago, which was a totally drastic difference. You know, went from the shores of Lake Superior to the uh, very, very crowded, you know, urban setting of downtown Chicago. That reminds me of uh, a Jackson Brown line, I think in a song where he says, gotta do what you can to keep your love alive. Try not to confuse it with what you do to survive. <laughs> so looks like That's your dog, good. maybe like, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's, she's like, hello, love me. So you ended up leaving Northland and you, where did you go to seminary? Yeah, so I went to Moody College. It's a Bible school in Chicago, and then I and then from there I, I went to Princeton Seminary, um, and uh, you know definitely became a uh, I ultimately became a Presbyterian minister uh, along the way. So uh, it was it was a good journey. Um, I I left what I would call is my, my family of origin, spirituality, which is much more evangelical, uh, much more fundamentalistic. I didn't know what I was in until I, I started studying and seeing the bigger perspective. And so I started being drawn to the, to the Presbyterian, the more open liberal side of the Presbyterian church, PCUSA. And, um, and I could integrate my, my spirituality with, with nature. Uh, and, John Calvin was a favorite of mine in seminary, but 
he says, you know, basically there's the book of God, the book of Revelation, and then the book of nature, and that both of them work hand in hand. And I kind of love that in the reformed tradition, the, the created order, including humanity and all the science and all our knowledge is a part of part of worship that we everything we do is for the glory of God, including you know, being stewards of the earth. So, well, I think that's a really good segue into our topic, and that is and I know you're a scholar, um, you understand and can translate transcribe uh, Greek. And I know you've done a lot of reading and studying over the years of various um, scripture and, and spiritual texts. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of religion, you know, going way back, uh, even, you know, predating our, our, our modern uh, religions, you know, big four or whatever you want to call them, and the roots that the very earliest, you know, humans had, you know, connection to nature and I know it's often referred to maybe as animism, but can you speak to that and and then how that's over time, um, you know, changed or developed? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple different developmental models out there, and the traditional model, you know, places the evolution of human beings, um, you know, basically waking up. Uh, from the plains of the Serengeti or whatever, and becoming Homo sapiens and smart animals, and having this self-awareness and being able to know that we know, and then language, and then you know tools and whatnot, and and that whole evolution of uh, you know this is one model that basically is kind of the dominant model where these little tribes gather together and they they move they shift from being hunter gatherers to being agrarian and settled in little tribes or little villages and being able to control their food supply was huge and they had surplus and then so not everyone needed to work and so the guild started up or the trades or the priests or the different classes of people that could didn't have to so to say go hunting they could they could have a little temple they could have a little religious ritual and then, of course, with the agricultural revolution, that just exploded all the more in the major, you know, delta regions of the Euphrates and the Nile and, and the major, you know, cultural centers. And then from there, organized religion and, and the organized state just went hand in hand, you know, for the most part, um, all the way through the, the flourishing of the monotheistic traditions. Um, and you know that's certainly one model. Uh, so there's this there's this uh, presupposition that the earlier tribal-based, you know, pre-agrarian-based cultures were animistic or just less hierarchical and whatnot. Uh, I just I think there's probably not much anthropological evidence one way or the other. Uh, I tend to be open to. I think our origins are much, much more mysterious than we could ever imagine, and certainly not as linear as they've been described. Um, and I don't, I think things were happening in different ways in different parts of the world. But for me, you know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, the, the evolutionary developmental model presupposes that we were moving from, you know, simplicity to complexity. Um, I actually don't don't really believe that that's how it happened. Um, 
I have much bigger view of, of some of humanity, at least, maybe not all of humanity or certain certain aspects or certain parts or time frames of humanity where I, you can put it in this way, I believe the, you know, the planet has been visited. Uh, however, however we got here, uh, whether it was from you know, divine creation or other art, uh, you know, higher levels of intelligence seeding the earth, uh, I see this place as a massive seed planted uh, with, with everything in it to grow and flourish, kind of like a, um, you know, <clears throat> like one of those uh, care packages mom would send, you know, if you went off to college, you had a basket full of everything you need, you know. Um, and so I tend to think that actually it wasn't, it's not this evolutionary coming up from, from you know, little cells moving up to higher co co complicated organisms, but probably the other way down coming coming from above down. So involution and evolution probably is somehow intertwined. And uh, I think there's some good biblical evidence for that, you know, like the concept of the Nephilim uh, in the book of Genesis that are, they're viewed as this, the angels or the higher beings that are breeding with the, um, the human beings. Uh, it's right before the flood, Genesis chapter five and six where the Nephilim start to, to appear on the planet. You know, I don't know what to really make of all this, but I, I, I just think the, the evolutionary models that we've got today have these huge gaps in them and makes, they just make absolutely no sense to me. And it raises tons and tons of questions, just as many questions as, as the traditional viewpoint of God creating, you know, human beings. I think somewhere in between is, is there's truth in it in, in both viewpoints um, and so I don't know you know it, it's not as a tidy developmental story as I think some would like to make it um, and uh, I think it's much more complicated and beautiful and sacred yeah I've been reading a, quite a bit recently on science needing to revise some of those models for a variety of reasons, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, just, it... pla just placing, like, they used to they used to place the Neanderthal culture, you know, at a certain place, and now they have to keep pushing everything back, and just the art that they're discovering gets older and older. It seems to be like, uh, well, wait a minute, you know, th things don't line up like we thought they might. It's much bigger. Well, it's interesting. Um, in a recent conversation uh, about bird language and some of the scientific discoveries uh, that my professor I co-teach with has made in, in the lab and the sort of running commentary for years is that, well, indigenous people have known this for thousands of years. You know, they may not have known it in the lab like acoustical analysis, you know, but they knew on a practical level what was going on. And, and so I think that, and in fact, professor was saying, you know, I, I, I learned some humility in that and that, you know, a lot of these things have been going on or has been a lot more complexity, as you say, than I think we want to give prior cultures credit for. Um, is it is it fair to say, though, that, you know, the earliest human civilizations that nature you know, was very important, close to them, and, and as you said, almost inseparable from, you know, their spiritual religious beliefs or practices, and that over time, uh, particularly Western development, but, you know, we've moved from, again, more of the hunter-gatherer to, uh, and I think even in, in, the, in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible, you know, there's the 
you know, part of uh, Nimrod, the stories of hunter gatherer, and then kind of seemingly a preference for more of the pastoral lifestyle, the shepherder. And then of course today, you know, we've become industrial. I, I don't know if you could speak to that and, you know, about that move and, you know, how that happened and or why that happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I just have my, my personal viewpoints. I've read recently, you know, that they've found ar archeological remains of, of Neanderthals, or, or even the, the species before Neanderthals, where they, they used to think that they didn't care about each other. They're just tribal and very aggressive. And, but actually they found, you know, little infants buried with, with like feathers or special trinkets. And I thought how tender, you know, or put that, that they've, they've literally ensconed a baby infant that died in the, in the embrace of the wings of a, of a bird. Um, you know, so this, this kind of fusion of, you know, life with the animal life, I think is, is I think was pretty natural for, for the earliest human beings and even before Homo sapiens. I think there was a connection, obviously. And that to me seems to accord well with, you know, like the, the image of the Garden of Eden, that humanity did begin in some interconnected place of, we could romanticize it, I guess. I don't think that things were as, as, uh, as, as benign as maybe the story presents, because I don't want to romanticize nature. It can kill you. And it has killed us. And I, you know, I would much rather live after 1850, after we discovered germs and anesthesia and all this stuff, you know. So I don't, I, you know, if I went into the Amazon forest right now, I would die pretty quickly. So I don't want to romanticize it. But at the same time, I think there was, in that animistic perspective, a real harmony of, of, of what I would just say is that communication of knowledge, of being, of being able to to intuit knowledge and feel knowledge from trees, from the sky, from the birds, from the animals, from the plants, and, and even the soil. You know, I think there was, if anything, marks the difference between our civilization and the prior civilizations. It's that that uh, deep intuition uh, of knowing through nature that we've lost touch with. Uh, I think somewhere. Um, someone calls it the great conversation. Feldon Lane has a book called The Great Conversation and he's quoting, I think, uh, either Aldo Leopold or John Muir. I think he's quoting John Muir saying that we've lost the ability to have the great conversation with nature. And I think that's true. You know, we have, we're so distanced from nature now um, that we know by third or fourth hand, not intuitive, intuitively, um, and so I think that the archaeological and anthropological record bears that out, that there was certainly an awareness, that deep intuition type of knowing. And then that gets me to what I would call some of the developmentalist of consciousness theories, that, that one of the more famous philosophers of our time, Ken Wilber, articulates in his theories of the spectrum of human consciousness. And, you know, I don't, whatever you make of the, his developmental model, there are lots of different developmental models, but basically he starts out the human civilization at the, this, the Euroboric phase, which is this the fusion 
of nature and man that you can't separate the two. It's the image of the, the snake eating its tail. Uh, it's kind of this blissful, romanticized union of, of man and mankind and uh, nature. And then what he calls the great fall upward it wasn't a fall down. It wasn't a loss of knowledge. It was a gaining of knowledge. So we, we entered into you know, that, that next level of development uh, of separation, uh, the, the mythic and the magical uh, dimensions of consciousness. And he's, he charts this all out in, in history. And he, he basically gets to what some call, you know, the, the great axial age, um, about 2500 BC, basically as the initiation of what he calls the uh, rational egoic stage of human consciousness, which we've been in, which, you know, started with the, the awakening of democracy and early science, philosophy, and culminated, you know, really in the last 300 years, say, say the Industrial Revolution. So we've been living now on the, t uh, probably in a new phase, the Anthropocene or, or, or even more, you know, where human beings made, some say, you know, need to go away and we just allow AI to take over. So we're definitely living in an in a evolutionary moment. But, you know, for most of recorded human history, we've been in that rational egoic level of consciousness, which I think uh, for, for many people has, has involved uh, what I would use the word domination of nature at, at the expense of nature Human beings have thrived at the expense of nature and, and, you know, the curve, the exponential curve of domination has just in the last 300 years, the, you know, the age of exploration led to the age of technology. And we've, we've essentially conquered everything that can be conquered on this planet. We've, we've ruined it in a certain sense. And now we're going to, you know, ruin other places uh, in, in the universe, the, you know, the moon and What's next, you know? So it's very interesting that, that uh, for me, as a, my critique of humanity on this planet has been one of really the last blink of an eye period of time, last 300 years or so, has done more damage to the earth, that, you know, that we have had more of an impact on the earth by way of our domination of it. On the one hand, it's given us incredible access to electricity and scientific knowledge like you know vaccines that can be developed the discovery of the double helix dna you know brain surgery open heart surgery just incredible blessings that we have because of this domination of nature and somehow there's got to be a rebalancing i think um of, of coming back into into partnership, not domination. But there was such a push, you know. There was just, there's just been a three, four, five hundred year push for this uh, conquering of the open spaces and conquering of the open lands and the new continents, and and that's been our consciousness: is keep growing, keep expanding, keep eating, keep keep you know making things better. I was just in Iowa, and. Uh, you, know, you can drive for hundreds of miles and see just acres and acres, thousands, millions of acres of 14-foot stalks of corn. Just they perfected it, you know, and it's it's just 
there's something bizarre about it. Just two crops, you know, soy and corn in a whole state. You know, you drive for four hours and it's just hundreds of miles of corn. And they've perfected it. And they need massive tractors running 24 hours, you know, massive fleets of tractors and combines running 24 hours to harvest all that stuff and plant all that stuff, all dependent upon diesel. And yet, you know, there's something extraordinary about that and something terribly, you know, almost like a Frankenstein, fields of Frankenstein. I, I don't, you know, scientists have engineered these, these corn to, to grow so tall and produce these massive yields. And it's, it's perplexing to me. I, I just, I wonder about it all. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> a number of trains of thought jumping around in my mind on that. One thing. Yeah, in that's the problem with interviewing a pastor. You just, <laughs> just keep going. No, no, it's, uh, I, I think it's more the topic actually. It's just so much <laughs> introduced there. One of the things that jumped out when you said that is, and this is, I, I think an existential question, really, you know, going back to say the story of Genesis and kicked out of the garden of Eden, there's this message. And as you pointed out, understandably, so that, you know, you're going to toil nature is, is hard. And there seems to be a continuing story of, at least in Western civilization. And I, you know, lived all over the world. Um, even in China has a similar thing of trying to control nature and, not that it's necessarily bad, but, you know, you want to put it in a box, make it work for you, take the wildness out of it. And, you know, in the Bible or scripture, you know, it talks about, you know, again, this move from sort of the hunter gatherer seems to be at least post Nimrod and that story of, you know, the, the hunter gatherer to more pastoral. And then in Western civilization, more recent times that, you know, as you said, controlling nature and there's all these, you know, nasty aspects of it, getting diseases, et cetera. There seems to be like a psychology there. And what I find really interesting is the dichotomy between that and, you know, certainly what I believe we're hardwired for. It's in our DNA. And, you know, here we are in modern culture, this postmodern society, and there's this crave to get back to nature. And of course, we've lost a lot of it, particularly in our urban landscapes. And it's just really interesting that dynamic you know, those two forces kind of competing against each other. And so I don't know if, you know, from both a religious standpoint and a psychological standpoint, if you have any insights there and, you know, and this kind of modern longing for reconnection to maybe what we've lost. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are wonderful questions and pondering. Um, I always found it interesting that the Bible's, you know, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, begin in a garden and the bible as we know it the, the christian scriptures end in a heavenly city now, that's very specifically defined what the city looks like um, and so there does seem to be this implicit bias toward development equals technology development equals transformation of nature and domination of it uh, Many have criticized Christianity because of that. Um, there's there's that implicit bias toward it. Like, you know, the, the wilderness was the place where God wasn't. That's where the demons were. Um, 
that the wilderness was the place where they wandered and then they were trying to get to the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, they could build, you know, Jerusalem. Um, yeah, so there's this, there's this, this, this sense of evolutionary development happening and that, you know, the, the, the nest that is Eden was here to be controlled and manipulated and developed and uh, to create the city of God. And in Judaism, the city of God, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, is is very important. Um, the navel of the world. It's the center of, of God's creative activity on this planet. Um, so uh, I think that accords well with the whole developmental model and the evolutionary model that uh, you know we superimpose over the uh, the Western tradition as well as the Eastern development. Uh, in China and India and other places, that there's this, there is this movement into complexity, into uh, from simplicity to complexity, to uh, hegemony in many ways. You know, power being more and more centralized, and as a result, you know, there's a certain control over nature that has been wielded, um, and he who controls the food controls the, the world. Uh, or she who controls who controls the world. So that's been a huge part of all of this, you know. And so, you know, what now? And I think we do find that there there is this um, this intuition that a lot of people have. They may not be able to express it, but but why do you go out into nature? Why are you longing to get back into the nature? Um, you know, you know, you live in this ur very urbanized setting, but you, you disappear on the weekends or you take your summer trips to go be in nature or you have extreme sports to get out into nature more readily. I think underlying that is this deep spiritual uh, seed of, of hunger that, like St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee, O God. But similarly, I think nature is the, the face of God. It's the closest many of us will ever get or feel to God, the great the mystery that is God, the love that is God, the order of, of God's uh, intelligence and mind and symmetry and beauty, uh, all the things that the Greeks meant by the word logos. Um, and so I do believe that nature becomes a very safe place for people to, to be reminded who they are. And to and to feel that connection non-cognitively you know they feel it through their emotional center their physiolo physiology just breathing in the way that the air smells in the Tetons changes me you know just looking at the Milky Way when I'm up in northern Wisconsin changes me Fe you know feeling and tasting snow uh, on a winter's day in Iowa changes me uh, standing in the uplands of rolling you know fields of Iowa just the other day where the wildflowers were let to to grow instead of the corn it just it was as if it, I was in heaven and so I think even people who would define themselves as being not spiritual or not even theists maybe someone who said I'm a hardened atheist firm and fast even they would say there's something about being in the standing in the in the pine forest, listening to the whir of the wind through the pine trees, something in them stirs 
and that that wind touches them in a deep way, they might as well just call it God. But, you know, it's, it's an ephemeral experience that teaches them that they're contingent and they're also connected. They're part of the whole. And I think that's the essence of spiritual life is to be reminded we're part of the whole. And therefore we can love one another and ethics come out of that and all that. And, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the tree as you love yourself. It's really interesting. I was hearing you describe that narrative of, you know, moving from the very primitive, you know, lifestyle, you know, hand to mouth kind of existence and then the, you know, city. And yet, you know, and, and in the Jewish scriptures, that's it's very clear uh, in the Old Testament. And yet there's this contra narrative, if you will, in the New Testament where, you know, Jesus his parables, his teachings, so much of them are about nature and very visceral. Um, or, you know, John the Baptist, his lifestyle, I know we don't know a lot about him, but, you know, it's clear he was a wilderness guy. I just find that dichotomy really interesting, and it seems like there's something there. I mean, I know they were parables and people could relate to them, but it seems like there was something more than that. You know, there's actually something literal in terms of having that connection, and you, you described it, I think, really well with some of those experiences that, you know, you still have. Yeah, I mean, Abraham, Moses... Uh, Elijah, all these holy men were, were recharged and they spent a lot of their time out in the wilderness alone with God, with the wilderness. You know, John the Baptist, Jesus did the same as well. They recharged almost like they preferred being alone into the, into the wilderness, you know, and then they would spend their energy when they're with people in the cities. Um, so it's very interesting uh, how, and then of course the, the earliest monastic communities, at least within Christianity, very quickly, by the second or third century of the common era, they were retreating into the desert wastes of Egypt and Cappadocia and, and you know. Those are the know, desert fathers, right? Desert fathers and mothers, yeah. So yeah. Um, there was something, they recognized that, there, that, that solitude, that silence, that simplicity, the being in the wilderness was very, very supportive to helping them remember God and helping them remember themselves and listening for that inner voice. So, Let me ask you this. I know you have a fascination with uh, survival, right, and read a lot about that. Can you tell us about that and just personally why it appeals to you and how it relates to this discussion? And also, though, in, um, you know, literally, you know, what you've gotten out of it. And because uh, I know you, you've had some actual fruits from that and learnings. Yeah, well, I, I think the, fr the fr first thing is that I just want to admit that uh, when you know, living in Austin, Texas, um, I I get stir crazy in the summer because it's so it's so hot, and so I tend to uh, read these these books about wilderness survival or survival stories or uh, rescue stories that are set in you know alpine settings with snow and ice and so it's it's kind of like escape therapy for me in the middle of the summer three four months of 100 degrees but i discovered a, a writer by the name of um, lawrence gonzalez who wrote a very masterful book called deep survival and it's full of stories of, of survival and rescue and Basically, he's trying to figure out what's the mindset behind or within people that survive and 
what's the mindset of people who don't? And it's fascinating, his conclusions, but essentially it's very, very neurological, you know, conclusion that uh, those of us who can control our left brain uh, fear, uh, I should say our right brain with our, with our left brain, that we can be more logical and not let the fear take over, uh, can, can oftentimes survive um, because they, they don't flip out or really flee. But anyway, it's, it seems to be a fascinating thing to see that there are certain traits that you can cultivate to help you be a survivor no matter what. Um, so I just love adventure stories that are set in the, in the Arctic or in the mountains. Um, I always have as a little kid just love those sorts of stories, rescue stories or adventure stories or escape stories. Uh, yeah, I, I've read a number as well. And uh, I know you've read the account by Cabeza de Vaca or La yeah, yeah, Nacion. You, you put me onto that. It's just so amazing. One of the things I wonder is that, um, you know, back then people were so much closer to death because it was all around them that, I don't want to say they were more comfortable with it, but I wonder if some of that neurological aspect you talk about not having the fears because they knew that was going to be their fate. And, you know, we spend so much time now, obviously, and, and we've gotten really good at it in many respects of avoiding that or pushing it off to the you know very last moment, uh, you know, because of all the, the medical uh, breakthroughs that we've had through the ages. So, I just wonder if they were, because they were closer to that, they had almost already accepted it in a way, you know, that was going to, and of course it's going to be all of our fate, but it's almost like we're in a disillusioned uh, state, you know, thinking that's not going to happen. But I, I guess with all of those, and Cabeza de Vaca is a great story. I don't want to ruin the ending, but after this incredible ordeal of seven years and, you know, the first, as far as we know, European American actually living here um, and all the things he went through after all that time and he makes it back to Mexico city and the travails and what have you. And he goes back and he to Spain for, I think a couple of years. And then he volunteers to do it all over again in South America. That's what I could not believe. <laughs> um, I have an uncle, similar mindset as a POW in Korea. And, you know, I was like, gosh, didn't you want to get out of the service and me? It came back. And he's like, no, nah, I just, you know, I figured it was going to come around again. So I'll just keep on going. I, that mindset's amazing. Um, and so yeah. I, I, I don't know if you have any comments on that, uh, but also for people that, you know, have experienced that type of hardship and, and just in general, like you said, living 300 years or, or prior 1850, you know, with that kind of harshness of nature and day-to-day -day existence, you know, it would be uh, pestilence, drought, flood, what have you, you know, attack from, you know, Genghis Khan and his horde coming in, whatever it is. How do you reconcile that? And I'm asking you personally, you know, between that and the beauty of nature that you talked about, because they just seem to be in one extreme. Uh, and yet, obviously, you know, we have to live with both of those. So how do you deal with that personally? Well, it's, for me, um, I welcome anything that reminds me of my contingency, and that leads to humility. And so I guess from a spiritual practice pers 
perspective that nature um, is is a partner that we are to live in harmony with and that will require discipline and sacrifice and patience on our part um, drawing it out you know drawing a life out from the barrenness of or the or the um, the difficulty of nature uh, you can't just expect to survive you know um, there is going to be sacrifice required you will probably have to kill an animal to live if you're all alone in the wilderness you will have to find out where to eat um, you will need to find out how to have shelter because temperatures will kill you so I think this does create a certain sense of humility and contingency and just a, a kind of an abandonment unto God, which is why, you know, trusting in the will of God was, you know, a big part of so much of human history. Because people realized they weren't in control as much as they, they, they were controlling their life. They really did know, I think, how much they weren't in control. Which does fascinate me why some people return to situations where they're not in control. Um, you know, like Ernest Shackleton, he, he was, as a young man, they went down, he went down to the Antarctic. He escaped narrowly and then couldn't wait to get back. You know, and these guys who, who do death-defying kind of things like uh, deep caves, scuba diving, uh, or other types of you know, dangerous sports, there's such a thrill in it. So I think there's something about the thrill of being uh, at the edge or, you know, out of control that people like, that it, it creates an adrenaline rush or an addiction that, that we can only get when we push ourselves to the edge. Uh, and nature is about one of the few ways we can do that, have that high safely, you know, it's better than cocaine, it's safer than speed or whatever. So people become junkies on nature because they get to feel that rush of the thrill of being on the edge of maybe they're going to die, you know. And so there's probably something like that going on for some small percentage of the population. But generally speaking, I think most people live in their very safe bubbles, um, you know, in urban settings and suburban settings. And even in rural settings, we're now all safely connected to the electrical grid and, you know, maybe there's flooding, maybe there's an outage for a temporary period of time, but for the most part, everything's predictable and safe, so it feels. Even if you live in the northern part of Montana or the middle of Texas, you probably have clean water and you probably have electricity. And so uh, my sense is, is that to a large extent, you know, nature has been tamed our experience of nature has been tamed. And so we forget how vulnerable we are until we are unplugged from it and put in a situation where we don't have power or we're lost at sea or we get lost in the woods. And that's very humbling and it wakes us up. Um, and uh, I mean, I think as a culture, as a society, that's one of the things I, I, I ponder and worry about, not, not really deeply worry about, but I just see the, the, is it really wise for us to be so contingent upon electricity, our food, our, our information, our communication, our gas, every single thing, if the electricity went out for some reason, is dependent upon electricity. 
we felt that in Texas, uh, you know, nearly two years ago, and the grid went down, and it's just like, whoa, you know, it, it definitely humbles us, and we we may have mastered so much, but we can easily be mastered by it if we're not careful, and I'm not a big survivalist or prepper or anything like that, that's not what I'm saying, but I, I just recognize that the impulse is that, um, you know, we need each other, we can't forget that, and we are not stronger uh, than the the tools we've invented. Um, sometimes, you know, we we become weaker by the tools we've invented because we 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 rely upon them and we become weak and vulnerable because of that. So, um, I like what you said about that, and it reminds me of that, you know, kind of the workout paradigm. But that tension or that resistance or even danger, that's a growth opportunity, you know, yeah. both in terms of, you know, just literally having to test your limits, mm -hmm. but internally, and I'm assuming that you would say on a spiritual side as well, certainly from a humility standpoint. And, and if we don't do that, it tends to make us soft. And I'm not saying that, listen, we've had, what, 60 something days over 100 degrees this summer. I, I like air conditioning. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. But I know what you're saying. And, and there's also a part that I don't want to say there's an enjoyment, but going through the harshness like that, you know, there is something that feels good and on a, both an adrenaline level and, you know, even an accomplishment level and, and just testing yourself, pushing yourself to the envelope. Yeah. I, I remember uh, reading a story and I, I don't recall his name, but a famous mountain climber, uh, who was actually quite judicious and he was talking about some of the stories he had climbing the Himalayan peaks and a few close calls he had and and one in particular he decided not to go because he, he just didn't like the setup and all of his colleagues died and uh, but but he was still doing it even after they perished and the writer asked him you know why do you do this and he said well and, and I think he had a family still what have you and he said well one of the reasons quite frankly is you know, our culture is going the other way and kids need to know that I think the actual term he said was there's still badasses out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't think he meant that so much egotistical kind of way, but there are people that are willing to push that and show that it's possible. And, you know, all the things that the, the good that you get out of that and the growth that you get out of that. So uh, it's just something I think about quite a bit in addition to all the other aspects that we get. And I guess that leads me to this question for you is that, again, in your own personal journey and what you do now, how do you, and, and what do you recommend for people, particularly those who, you know, may not live in next to a national forest um, and are in more of an urban setting, how do you find God and, and spiritual fruits in nature today, what do you recommend? What are the things you do? And, uh, you know, are there some specific practices that, you know, you could tell people that, you know, can cultivate this? Well, yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I think half the population of the United States lives along the coasts, west or east or south. And so one of the things I did when I lived in downtown Chicago for four years, every day, whether morning or after dinner, I would take a walk 
down to Oak Street Beach. And though, you know, the John Hancock Tower is right there behind me and the Gold Coast condominiums were right there behind me, if I looked out to the east, I could only see the glory of the beautiful blue Lake Michigan and hear the waves crashing. I couldn't even hear the, the sound of the traffic. And so I think the, the moral of the story is find a place to take refuge and, and to remember your connection and, and be, be fed by the beauty and the energies of nature. Um, and I think a lot of people are closer to the coastline than they might realize. They can go do that regularly. And the other thing is I'd walk past this park called Newberry Park. Uh, it's the park right in front of Newberry Library. And in every season, you know, that park was, was beautiful. A small park right there, just one block, but it was, had old trees in it. And so the trees hid the city and I could just be with the trees as I walked through spring, summer, fall and winter. And uh, it was a very close park, urban park, but nevertheless, the trees did something to me every time I visited. So I think there are sacred sanctuaries all around that you just have to find wherever, wherever you might live. And for those of people that are lucky enough to live, you know, where they can drive 30 minutes or an hour outside of the suburban or urban setting, most of the country, you know, you can easily get out and see land, open space. Most of the country is open space. So we, you don't have to go far to, to experience it. I think just taking walks, just to do that alone is, is therapeutic and deeply grounding, and, and especially if you can walk in a forest or a field. Um, so those are simple things to do, I think, just to get out of your little bubble and, and uh, even getting your bare feet on the ground or lying on the grass with your body uh, is, is energetically helpful and healing, restoring. Um, I know here in, in Austin, there's this place called Barton Springs, and there's a grassy hill where I like to just lie on the grass underneath the big, big pecan trees, and then jump in the water and then dry off lying in the grass. And it's, it's more therapeutic than all the counseling sessions I've ever been. It's just energetically healing and very rejuvenating. It's almost impossible to describe and cost yeah. hardly anything. Yeah, when it's 104 outside and you jump in that water, it, it gets your attention, it wakes you up. Yeah. Uh, but the drying off is also part of the experience because something about the evaporation of that water in sunlight or just in the, the air, the warm air blowing, is extraordinarily therapeutic. As you were saying that, I was reminded of uh, a well-known outdoorsman. I was listening recently and he was saying that you know, with, with all the things going on in our world and the, you know, loss of habitat and destruction, there's a lot of people, and, and I've certainly done this, and I have some good friends who lament that and, you know, become very remorseful. Um, and, you know, and I can understand why, uh, but he said, the true outdoorsman or the true naturalist can always find something. You know, you, they can lose their hunting spot, their fishing spot, you know, where they're going hiking, and you can give them just a small patch of land or, or sea or whatever, and they can go zone in on that and just 
you know, have a tremendous experience in nature and nature connection and find so much enriching just in that one small thing. He goes, that's the, and, and he gave a story about walking an urban landscape and watching the few people who would notice uh, a bass in the river right in the middle of that in a spawning bed. And I thought that was such a beautiful story. And, um, you know, the courses that I teach, one of the things I think that's so good about those, whether it's, you know, something about uh, foraging plants or uh, wildlife tracking or bird language is that you can do them almost anywhere and immediately gives you that connection. And, and I think, you know, the fruits of what you were talking about. And so uh, it doesn't mean all the other things that are going on are, you know, good and what mm -hmm. have you, but I think that's a good reminder. And, and not only that, I think it's, it's stimulating. It's a learning experience. Um, and I, I'm going to ask you this really quickly uh, about your story. I know there's a place that you would go walk in the prairie, these beautiful wildflowers, and I believe it's called Rhymer's Ranch. And then you went out there one day and something happened and you were horrified, right? Do you mind sharing that story uh, when it all turned black? Oh, um, well, there, I, I think you're talking about the time I went out there and they had uh, done prescribed burn. Yeah. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. Um, but the next year and the year after that, those same fields uh, were more abundant with wildflowers than ever before. So it was just totally shocking to me to see the scale of the burn uh, and, and very bold to me because there's a lot of trees there. And I was stunned at the trees, how they were able to manage the fire. You were worried, right? About things coming back. And I really was worried. and. I mean, it just looked so, so scarring. Like, how is anything going to come back to life? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the amazing thing about nature. It's always surprising you. And, you know, you, even something like that happens and then you, if you're paying attention, you're like, wow, you know, look yeah. at this coming to life again, the sort of creation process happening all over again. I'm, I'm always astounded by that when I see that, that, you know, nature never stops trying. Yeah, it's so, so amazing to see. I mean, obviously, um, lightning strikes were very prevalent and did that sort of thing over the last, you know, thousands of years here in North America. But, but um, you know, now we need to do it for, for, for nature, apparently. Uh, or I, I guess if it did start on fire by a lightning strike, they might try and put it out or control it. But um, it's, it certainly is fascinating to me that fire, fire mitigation at the very least. I read a study recently that um, I always had this question that uh, at least in this part of the world down here in the South Central Southwest that Native Americans, they think said about three quarters of the fires here, you know, versus lightning strikes. So most of them man may, and, and they did that to create habitat. Yeah. Uh, and there's a wonderful book about that. Um, and and many other things with, called yeah move, move the animals and exactly bring them. back the plants they want clear brush uh, there's a book about california called tending the wild mm -hmm. but what was even more interesting was that their fires only burned about 40 percent of the landscape the other 60 percent even though it was a small percentage of the fire set only about a quarter of them they they burn majority of the land and so they were doing things very intentionally and um, again it, it just you know kind of reminded me of you can work with nature, have it work for you. If you do it in a, a smarter way, you know, you, 
I don't want to say you have the best of both worlds, but um, you know, you, you can definitely have a connection with it and yet at the same time do something that's that's beneficial or at least not harmful. Yeah, I don't know if you mind if I, I what you're talking about uh, reminds me of a poem that I just came across. But if you mind me reading. No, it. by all means. Because it's just so poignant. It's by this guy named Red Hawk, who is a professor. And uh, if you don't believe that Red Hawk is his, is his, uh, was his born name, but uh, that's the name he's taken as an author. But this, you know, this poem gets at what you were talking about and the difference between uh, how how our culture has has dominated culture. I mean, nature. Whereas indigenous Native Americans lived in harmony or partnership with it in a way that that oftentimes didn't make sense to the white man. But uh, this is his poem called Keepers of the Bones. And it's, it's a very barbed criticism, but it's also a profound truth. To understand the white man's mind, you need look no further than the Smithsonian. In the basement, where the air is cooled and the humidity carefully controlled. That is where they keep the bones of the Indians, thousands of them. One section half a block long is just Indian skulls. They have examined the bones very closely, sectioned them under electron microscopes, carbon dated, analyzed and dissected them, weighed and measured them, cataloged, cross-referenced and stored them. They put it all down in books, every ounce and scrap of, in boxes lining the wooden cases, row upon terrible row. And when the tribes ask them to return the bones for proper burial, the Smithsonian refuses. They say, these belong to the federal government, and the Indians believe it. In all their books, it does not say what they were looking for or if they ever found it. Once a reporter asked Sitting Bull why the Indians didn't bury their dead. He said, the crows and the worms, all the scavengers have to eat too. What good is the body to us once the spirit has left it? It belongs to the earth, not to us. And they took his picture for the paper. It's powerful. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, The Art of Dying by... Red Hawk. Now I know where Clint Eastwood got that line in his movie, <laughs> Josie Wales. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so poignant. And I, I think maybe wrapping up here that, you know, throughout human history, even in some uh, native cultures, you know, there was always this ten tendency to, you know, start controlling nature, but there's a way to do it and live in more in harmony with it. Maybe not perfection, but, you know, without... Uh, abusing your resources, using them all up. And yeah. I think we have a lot to learn from, and then they made some of their mistakes too, but uh, there's uh, a term called traditional ecological knowledge and being able to work with that and utilize that, which is much less impactful. And uh, again, I think a lot of these skills that we talk about, um, you know, are able to do that in such a way that even if we maybe can't do it in mass in our culture, you know, on a personal level, people can certainly get the benefits from it. Yes. Well, we have so much to learn from, from the indigenous cultures, and I appreciate what you're doing to help that. 
in that, that image of, you know, the Smithsonian basement cataloging, you know, studying, putting things underneath the magnifying glass, thinking to control and, to, and that now you've got it, you know, and uh, writing it down in books. And this is the Western mindset that's been dominant to control, catalog, to preserve, you know, to, to have storage. Uh, loses the the life force, but um, you know, versus just letting the the power of life unfold. One of the most helpful authors that's bringing you know the Western mindset, the left brain thinking together with the right brain thinking. Uh, he's really worth reading. He's got a new book, two volume set, called The Matter with Things. Uh, his name is Ian McGilchrist, and I just com commend to your re your listeners this guy. He became famous for his book Master and His Emissary and the Emissary, which is about the, the dual hemispheres, left and right, needing to harmonize. But his new two-volume set's massive. It's like 1,800 pages. But the the second volume, volume two of The Matter of Things by Ian McGilchrist, is his summation of it all. And it's such a harmonization of the Eastern wisdom and th with the Western knowledge, with indigenous, with the, with the you know modern capitalism and culture. So much of this needs to be harmonized and woven together, rather than you know we're not going to solve it by making these guys wrong and the, these guys right. It's just more fighting. So there's got to be another way forward, and he presents it in its in, in beautiful ways harmonizing um, matter and spirit, nature and technology, left and right. It's really quite extraordinary. That sounds fascinating. And that maybe answers a question. I remember uh, reading or listening to Joseph Marshall, who's Oglala Sioux, and he was very much influenced by his grandfather, who uh, I believe was either maybe born in a very young age, moved to a reservation or might've been born on reservation, but it was right after it started. And, um, you know, this would have been around time frame of 1880s, sometime like that. And he was with his grandfather during the first moon landing. They watched it together and he, you know, imagine the changes that his grandfather had seen. And he had passed him along all these tremendous stories and wisdom sayings, you know, that he had learned and, um, uh, I, I encourage people to look it up. It's amazing, uh, those stories. And so his grandson asked him, you know, they're watching the moon landing, what he thought of it. And he said he paused and said, that's a very impressive feat. And then he paused again and he said, but I don't think they're very wise people. <laughs> and I thought, you know, how profound. I mean, it is technologically, it's an amazing thing, but so much of the other things that were, you know, go along with it. And so I think that what you just, Ian McGilchrist. Uh, Ian McGilchrist, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that finding a way, if we can, if possible to, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to go back to Stone Age, obviously, unless it's forced no. upon us, uh, but somehow to integrate those so that we can be more wise and, and get the benefits of, you know, living closer to nature would be helpful for everybody. Yeah, I mean, we, we are a people in a nation, you know, that has decoded the human genome, all of it. And yet, we 
still don't know how to live harmoniously with each other. Um, and there's so much violence. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, that's a great criticism. What a feat, you know, all these things that we've done. And yet, we're really just adolescents. We live in an adolescent culture led by adolescent, if not infantile leaders um, who, you know, aren't seeking the whole. They're seeking to win for this part and this part alone, I think, for the most part. And it's, it's, it's so hard to work for the whole. Everyone who, get, who works for the whole tends to get shot or killed, you know, because it's, the profits get taken out. They want to hold a bigger vision for the whole. And that's terrifying to a lot of people because they feel threatened by it. Uh, they, they would rather live in either or, me against you, I'm right, you're wrong, dualistic thinking. And um, it's just rooted in left brain, right brain stuff. And we've got to evolve beyond it. If, our, if, our, if this many of us are going to live uh, in any kind of well-being on this planet, and escaping to another planet isn't going to help us. We just take ourselves. You know, I always say, you know, it's not, it's not the, people say, well, just read the Bible. And I say, well, okay, I'll read the Bible, but I'm more interested in who is reading the Bible and what is their consciousness that is reading the Bible. It's the consciousness that's in, in each of us that can expand and grow and that's relating to the, to nature and one another. And um, we live in very, very interesting times. I've never been more optimistic, but at the same time, it's very sobering. Yeah. Well, I know you're a hopeful person. And um, I think sometimes, you know, I mean, I like so many things of Westernization, but, you know, we've probably gotten off track or maybe the original idea, I think it was Aristotle talked about the good life, but that was not so much a material thing, but internally, right? And maybe kind of getting back to that, um, or as I, I think it may have been Gandhi who said, asked about Western civilization, he said, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I know you're an optimist, right? And, and um, you think, you know, there's always hope for the future. And uh, I certainly do. I don't know what that is in terms of, you know, ecology and the things we've been talking about, but if you have any last remarks on that. I believe in the victory of consciously chosen love and that love is what binds us all together and that it is ultimate importance. It's not only the ground from which we come, it's the teleos, the, where we're going, the end to which we're going. And without love, uh, nothing else sounds right. Nothing else will work. Uh, it's just, uh, it's the, the essential ingredient and so whatever nurtures love you know will nurture the environment and um, uh, there's a difference between being and existence and in our culture people have confused existence as being primary uh, and i'll put it this way you know being born gives you existence but it doesn't give you being being comes from conception. Your beingness comes from conception and your conception does not come from just you. And so, you know, there is something totally else involved in conception other than you. The woman brings 
certain part of the chromosome, the man brings another part. So you can't be can't get conceived on your own, you know, and and not only that, um, that life force that's getting coming down from one generation to the next comes from somewhere else, you know, you know, life just didn't start here. So we've lost that perspective because it's so much easier to live in a flatland where we just say all that there is is existence and, 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 and you know, forget about being. Um, and if, if, if we live in a world of just existence, you know, the, the, the nightmare scenario is where does being, what's the value of being then? And if it's just about existence, you know, well, then you can wipe out whole categories of people or animals or species and not really think about it um, because you've lost connection with being, that the sacredness of their existence is their being. And you can't create someone's being. You can't even create your own being. We're contingent. And that's where it's beyond theology, but it's not beyond spirituality. And, uh, you know, you can, you can be an atheist, you know, ultimately, but I would just really put it, put, it, put it to someone and say, how do you explain your own being? Where does it come from? Um, you're more than your existence. You have a being. Where does it come from? And um, just as much as the elephants and the giraffes and the horses and the bumblebees, they all have different beings. And each one is sacred. And I think that's what the native indigenous populations knew. They knew the sacredness of being, they couldn't create it or replace it. Uh, and, and we've forgotten that. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up, although we may have to continue this in another session <laughs> that launches a whole other uh, set of topics. But thank you so much. Really appreciate those insights, Peter. Uh, you're doing wonderful work. And again, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, brother. It's good to see you. It's okay, to take care. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. Okay.